Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. This is an interview with Hank Tenneke, a Dutch toxicologist who in 2011 wrote The Systemic Pesticides, A Disaster in the Making. Hank applied his years as a toxicologist in cancer research to actions we were seeing with neonicotinoids. He introduced us to Haber's rule, the Druckery-Kupfmuller equation, and the dose-time relationship. In short, he demonstrated that the actions of neonics is cumulative and irreversible, meaning there is no safe dose, and given sufficient time, even the smallest exposure will lead to death. Hank was excoriated mightily by the chemical industry and many within his own profession, ironically, a measure of the validity of his concerns. His research made many people very uncomfortable, like all good whistleblowers do. Even today, the plant more flowers for the bees movement ignores the message Hank brought to us, and few researchers appear willing to grasp the enormity of the environmental poisoning Hank warned of. This interview became a collaborative effort between myself, Mark Peterts from the Netherlands and respecter of Hank, and Tom Theobald, beekeeper activist from Colorado. I spoke with Hank just a couple of months before his death, and the voice recording turned out to be quite difficult to understand. So Mark, whom I found on Hank's Twitter page, deciphered and transcribed the interview. I then recruited Tom Theobald, whom Hank spoke fondly of, and who had interviewed him several times about neonics. We jump right into the conversation. I hope you enjoy. It gets a bit scandalous at the end. I'm interested in how the system basically... Uh, treated me? Yeah, how they treated you and mistreated you. That's what I find very interesting, because it's the same way they treat anybody that speaks out. Well, I must refer to Che Guevara the revolutionary from Cuba, who became Minister of Industry and Commerce in Cuba after the revolution. And he went to New York once and spoke at the United Nations, and a very good journalist asked him, hey, Mr. Guevara, what's wrong with, with capitalism? And Guevara answered, with capitalism, the economy is ruled by people you never get to see. And that really describes the situation of what happened to me after I published my findings on the neonicotinoid insecticides. The people from Bayer, when I meet them at congresses or conferences or other meetings, are very polite and very amiable. But when I published my paper, it was immediately followed by a letter to the editor in which they tried to discredit my work. They were plainly only lying because the central thesis was, in fact, promoted by Bayer collaborators in the 90s. They wrote that imidacloprid was binding to nervous system receptors in an irreversible fashion, and they published two papers on the subject, one in 1991 and one in 1999. And based on that finding, I could conclude 
that there were similarities between the dose response, characteristics of neonicotinoid insecticides, and chemical carcinogens. Mainly, they are described in what we call the Druckree-Kupfmuller equation. Druckree was my mentor in Germany, and I visited him many times during this period. He studied the dose-response characteristics of chemical carcinogens. After the war, he spent some time in an American internment camp in Bavaria. He met another scientist, Karl Kupfmuller, who was proficient in mathematics. The question Druckree had was, is there a theoretical foundation for what I have seen? That, in fact, he had done an experiment in which he showed that the total dose determined the carcinogenic effect. And if he gave that total dose over a period of a month, he achieved cancer in a month. And if he distributed it over a longer period of time, for example, a year, then he had cancer after a year. So it was evident that small doses cause damage and that that damage accumulates. When critical level of damage is reached, the cancer emerges. Now we know the damage is caused in DNA, which is irreversible and which causes mutations in the genome and usually leads to loss of function in the cell. And if there is an accumulation of loss of functionality in the cell, he ended up with a primitive cell that will divide and divide and divide and cause a tumor. So the biochemistry of cancers strongly supported the theory that they came up with shortly after the war. And I discovered the same mechanism for neonicotinoid insecticides. They damage the central nervous system. And when a certain level of damage is reached, and it is incompatible with life, so the insect dies. Well, let me ask you a question about that. The damage is irreversible, and that's the point, isn't it? Because Bayer says the damage is reversible, and that means that bees can survive it. And your point was they cannot. The damage is irreversible. That's what they came up with. with in the letter to the editor following the publication of my paper. It is plainly incorrect because they published otherwise in the 1990s. They were very adamant in those days that receptor binding and the resulting damage was irreversible. Based on ecological properties of these neonicotinoid insecticides, I predicted that we would be facing an environmental disaster. That was the reason I wrote the book, Disaster in the Making. The fact of the matter is, the fact, the fact of the matter is, I was. My theories were attacked and rejected with improper and incorrect reasoning because they themselves had described the mechanism that I said would lead to these kind of dose-response relationships that were reminiscent of chemical carcinogens. So basically, the industry, Bayer, was not really interested in the truth. No. They were more interested in just silencing the voices that were speaking truth against their products. Yes. Neonics have been on the market for 20 years? Since 1991 in the United States. 
And that matches exactly the timeline of the decline of the honeybee, which is the only insect we really measure and count. So 10 years ago, you saw the future. You called synthetic neonicotinoids a disaster. That's really a long time to watch an oncoming train. What did you see when you first learned of neonics? What did you see coming? I saw a general decline of arthropods coming and the insects would decline. Did you see that the food chain was going to break? Insects have three important functions that I know of. Pollination, their food source, and they remove dead organic material and return the nutrients to the soil. And I thought all these three aspects would be endangered. So I expected that the birds would decline, and what we're seeing is a tremendous decline in the aerial insectivores since that time. The whippoorwill, for example, the barn swallows, and the swifts have a difficult time. So that, I predicted, would happen. And I would also predict that insectivores in general would become the victims, and apparently the neonicotinoids also cause immune suppression. And what has happened to the bats is an absolute disaster. And the mortality of bats is promoted by a fungus, but also because they are exposed to the neonicotinoids, insecticides, that reduce the food source, and also because the intake made the animal immune to parasites. I also predicted that the snakes would disappear. Of course, reptiles are insectivores. And the frogs in California have nearly all disappeared. The Sierra Nevada is devoid of frogs these days. You know what I see, Hank, here in California, where I live, the skies are empty. It's exactly what Rachel Carson predicted. It's a horror show. I quoted Rachel Carson just recently that nature can be destructed quite easily, but can also hit back in unexpected ways. What we are seeing at the corona crisis is perhaps the zoonoses a zoonosis is an, any disease or infection that is naturally transmissible from vertebrate animals to humans, is promoted by the fact that we're doing intensive agriculture and in interfering with ecosystems and that that is not good for planetary health. I have watched in those 10 years since you wrote your book, and I'll just ask you about this. A machine basically destroyed your livelihood and your opportunities. Are you interested in discussing those players and their relationship to academia and Bayer? I'm particularly interested in Coloss in the EU. That's the equivalent to the informed partnership in the US. So in Europe, you have a whole bunch of different players than we have here. I think Bayer employs very good toxicologists, and I'm sure some of them must have realized that they have a real problem on, the, on their hands. To sell a product of which you know is going to destroy the environment is a criminal act. So I think they should be taken to court and they should be forced to pay damages, which can be used to restore nature as far as we possibly can for committing ecocide. They have committed ecocide. They committed ecocide and they are responsible. They have a liability 
And if I had the money, I would take them to court. I look at that ecocide that they have created, and they did not do it alone. They had a lot of help. They had a lot of enablers. In the U.S., they've got their enablers here at the public university entomology departments who say neonics are fine for honeybees over and over again. That's right. The honeybees are, in fact, not a very good example of the impact because you have a queen and a colony. And as long as the queen stays healthy, she can lay as many eggs as we want to make up for the losses of worker bees. So a colony may appear healthy, but very tiny concentrations of neonics can kill the bees before the end of their life. But as long as the queen remains healthy, they could make up for those losses. You wouldn't see a collapse. Collapse will only, a collapse will only occur due to reduced immune function. The colony becomes susceptible to parasites, like the varroa mite, actually will give them the final blow. So I see the varroa mite as a secondary effect and not the prime cause of bee mortality. That is the theory that Bayer has adopted. They did the same thing here in the U.S. Almost all beekeepers can describe what a mite looks like. They can describe body parts and they know everything about mites. I'm almost the only beekeeper around here that talks about neonics and other synthetic systemic poisons in bee food, in flowers. And I just don't understand how the narrative that it is not pesticides is so powerful. It's amazing. And beekeepers here in beekeeping associations, they're the ones who say the loudest that neonics are not a problem. That's right. It is money. It makes the world go round. The authorities are always short of money. The only institutions that have money to spend are the big corporations, and they spend a lot of money on keeping the negative stories buried to reduce their impact. There is a huge pesticide lobby here working in Brussels to influence the decisions taken by the European Commission. And I think the situation is similar in Washington, D.C. In the Trump administration, there is very little hope that things will change. This is the problem. But all we can do is use our mind and publish papers underpinning the problem and hope that some people will take those serious. I think that at the end of the day, something is bound to happen because at the end of the day, there will be so much damage to nature that people will not tolerate it. Right, well, the loss of birds. It's almost a no-brainer that if you don't have insects, you're not gonna have birds. You took a lot of heat for saying birds were also in a crisis because of neonics. Well, basically, I realize we look at very few insects. We look at bees because we need them, and we look at butterflies because they're pretty. But the remaining insects can get losses as well, but most people don't really care about insects. So if you want to make a point, you have to look at species that are well monitored and dependent on insects. That's how I came to look at the birds. And I identified the birds that are in rapid decline and then looked at their nutrition, at their diet, whether they were dependent on insects or fish, which protein source was required for reproduction, for example. And invariably, the declining species were dependent on insects, whereas other species were doing fairly well, 
the herbivores or the fish dependent birds who are also doing reasonably well, which can only be a matter of time because fish are dependent on insects as well. There is still enough fish to keep fish eating birds alive. Those data are published in my book. It's interesting I submitted the data to a group of experts at the UICN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, and we had a meeting in Paris. One chap from the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, a fam famous English Bird Protection Association, said, oh, that's a load of rubbish. I have never heard of the problem. I have never heard of these neonics doing anything to birds. That's obviously the problem with the whistleblower. He comes up with a new theory or a new thesis that nobody has heard of, and some people just brush it aside like he did. Until I met a reputable ornithologist, toxicologist that had that agreed with me, there was an imminent danger who I published with. Francisco Sanchez Bio on whose work I based my theories. He's in Australia or New Zealand? He's a Spaniard, but works in Australia. He is also working in Japan. I published important papers, basically translating the theories of Drucker and Kupfmuller to the Anglo-Saxon world, introducing them to these mathematical analyses. Because of this work, I felt very comfortable that I had things right. I had no doubt that we were facing a real problem. That gave me confidence to sustain and keep on going, really. I understand completely. And it's so funny because there's something that happens to people where we think if we just tell the truth and back it up with science, it can change things and make a difference. But what we are dealing with is an industry that practices criminal behavior, in my opinion. And that's why this podcast is called Pollinators in Power, because you don't know what's really happening. It's not discussed, and it's not known to the general public. Can you talk a little bit about how systemic poisons kill pollinators and insects? Like what actually happens inside the plant? Because people don't understand. They think it washes off or just goes away. Can you talk about that? Neonicotinoids were introduced as a revolutionary new approach to pest control. They are usually soluble in water, and you can coat the seed with these substances. And when you have sown the seed and the plant grows, it takes up the insecticide from the seed. Via the roots, it distributes these pesticides throughout the plant. And when the plant starts to flower, the compound also enters the nectar and the pollen. So when the bees collect the nectar and pollen, they also collect a tiny concentration of these insecticides, which are systemic insecticides. That's how a bee colony gets contaminated with these insecticides. Well, at the same time, a constant reproduction is taking place and larvae are also exposed to these pesticides. And because they are fairly stable in soil and water, if you take cothianidin, for example, in the soils, it has a half-life of more than a decade. And when it is dissolved in water, it is only destroyed by, which is 
effective in a small top layer of water in the top of a stream. So the main bulk of the substance is not changed very much. So what it means is that the whole flora is exposed to a pesticide for a very long time. That's what Rachel Carson also noted with DDT. We saw it everywhere all the time, and that can't be good for nature. And neonics are even thousands of times more powerful than DDT. Yes. When you take the acute toxicity, then neonics are thousands of times more powerful than DDT. But when you take the yardstick to chronic toxicity to, let's say, toxicity to the relation to life expectancy, which is for some bees 60 days, I believe then that the amount of concentration of compound required to cause mortality over a lifetime is so infinite infinitely small. That's what people don't realize, what it means when you have been dealing with cumulative toxicants. You need very, very tiny amounts, and over the passage of time, they will cause havoc. A little drop of poison is enough to poison a whole well. The grasshoppers are declining at a tremendous rate in the American prairies. And when the vegetation takes up these compounds of cumulative toxicity, the grasshoppers must decline, and that's what we are seeing in the U.S. So does imidacloprid work? Yes, it works like hell. But it also builds resistance. Imidacloprid here in California, used by the citrus industry, they don't work in my opinion, because nursery industry has to change up the protocol because the pest insect becomes resistant. So they have to change insecticide every other year and use something else that's not a neonic to fool the insect and stop the resistance. So to me, that means it doesn't work. It's a product that doesn't work. The, uh, the thesis, my publications were taken very seriously by EFSA, E-F-S-A. They published a paper in 2012 in which they suggested that we should look closer at chronic toxicity with the honeybees. And this bee guidance document was eventually based on the scientific opinion of 2012. It caused a lot of resistance in the pesticide industry because they were fully aware that it would lead to the withdrawal of a lot of their products from the market. And when you take the organophosphates, for example, they bind irreversible to the acetylcholinesterase, which is the very enzyme which removes acetylcholine from the neuron. They all follow the Drucker-Kupfmuller equation, so they would know that the chronic toxicity, toxicity of the LC50 would be much lower, would be much lower of the acute toxicity of LC50. That would probably lead to the withdrawal of the, of the substance of the market because residues are usually much higher than the chronic LC50. LC50 is the concentration of the chemical in the air or water that will kill 50% of the test animals with a single exposure. LC50 values usually refer to the concentration of a chemical in the air 
but in environmental studies, it can also mean the concentration of a chemical in water. So there were a lot of reasons for the pesticide lobby to try to influence this document. It is only because of good journalists that researched this that we eventually were to know that they were trying to dilute the document so that they would have feasible results. So eventually the European Parliament decided that the original B guidance document should be adopted by the commission. I don't know the current status, but it is slowly moving in the right direction. I would love to have those documents. I will send them to you. What do you think about the partnership of academia with the chemical corporations? Terrible. That's terrible. They shouldn't collaborate, but they do because they need money for their work. They are dependent on the chemical industry, and the chemical industry always gives money to people who have, who have influence on the registration process. That's how they manage it usually. The bee experts in Holland always get work from the chemical industry. I was asked to speak at a conference in Holland a couple of years ago about natural beekeeping. And I said I would speak, but under the condition that only if the conference was not sponsored by the pesticide industry players in academia, like Peter Newman. And of course, everybody was there. The pesticide industry people were all up in there. You know, they just own the beekeeping topic. Do you know who kept your theories silent? Who helped to keep your work quiet and down in the EU? Do you have any idea? Well, I have some idea because I gave many lectures and there were always people from Bayer and Syngenta attending these lectures and counteracting what I was saying. They didn't really touch me. They could never deny that dose response indicators and even if you don't like the theory of irreversible effects, then you can't deny the dose response relationship. That I told were the major implications, but they started to support work that came with other results. They actively invested in scientific work that came up with favorable answers for them. Wageningen University. Wageningen. That is the Agricultural University in Holland. Okay. They consider themselves top of the bill. I think they have a terrible record in terms of pesticides degradation. And I am criticizing them for that. I have a Twitter account on which I constantly attack them for a failure to respond to, for example, the lack of condemnation of neonics for not doing anything about it and not being willing to re to revive guidelines so these compounds can no longer be admitted to the market. There are just too many interests at stake. And these authorities are also by part financed by the industry. But because when a chemical company submits a dossier applying for registration for a compound, as a pesticide, they have to pay a lot of money for the authority to review the dossier. So, is, so there is a dependency there too, which I don't like. There are 
certain functions that must be completely independent from industry. And if that doesn't work, then we are heading for problems. That's what we are seeing now. If the testing is corrupt, if they are collaborating with the companies who are making the products that they are testing, there's no way that they can have an independent test. That's right. There's no way. I agree. How do you think we can crawl back from the brink at this point? I think a lot is happening because there's been a lot of publicity about me, about the fact that all my predictions have materialized, massive insects declines, massive bird decline, decline of bats, of frogs, things that I warned about have happened. So I get a lot more support than I used to get. That creates pressure on the government and the authorities as well. I think eventually it will change and we don't, won't use as many pesticides as we used to. Change is about to come, but it takes a lot of time. Is that an answer to your question? Yes, it is. Um, it's so funny. When you think about these systemic poisons, and this is just one of them, there's still systemic herbicides, systemic fungicides, and they don't get the press like neonics do. So I'm worried about that too. If you look at the fungicides, my approach to dose-response relationships is now adopted by some scientists. They have, for example, generated evidence on boscolid, which is a succinate dehydrogenase-inhibiting fungicide. It is a central enzyme in the glycolysis and in the Krebs cycle, citric acid cycle, in fungi. And if there isn't much difference between fungi and mammalians to justify the use of such fungicides, we are attacking the central system in the energy production for these cells. We are basically attacking mitochondria. The French have protested against the use of these fungicides to no effect so far, but eventually things will change. I hope we have enough time. Yes, so do I. Now I look out my window and it seems like, damn, it's here. It's just what my purpose here is to call out the players who benefited from this disaster because there's a lot of them. Oh, I was talking to Tom Theobald. Do you know him? Yes. He said to mention and ask you about what you thought about Randy Oliver. Randy Oliver is an asshole. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I don't know why people, uh, when he talks, it's like God is talking. People just listen to him. And I'm like, can't you hear what I hear? The guy is wrong, and he's loudly wrong. He is saying that nicotine isn't binding irreversible, and it isn't. That's very true. So that the, his argument about neonicotinoids binding irreversibly is totally wrong. It isn't wrong, in fact, put forward by bioscientists themselves. And he never addresses others. Never mind, he will be proven wrong eventually. These corporations, you're probably aware of the Roundup trials here in San Francisco in the Ninth Circuit Court, where they were finally brought to trial and the product was proven bad for causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
And you just look at the dirty tricks that Monsanto played throughout the years to cover up the damage their product was causing. It makes me frightened for our food system that something so important as our food is controlled by dirty tricksters, pesticide mafia, basically. Yes, that's right. I'm really glad we talked today, Hank, and uh, hope to talk soon. Thanks, Tom. Question. There was one thing that Hank said. What was it? Hank said that um, Randy Oliver was a, the fifth. The fifth column. Explain that to me. What does that mean? The fifth column comes from World War II, and it's basically someone within your own ranks who is a traitor. Mm. Google up a uh, fifth column and you'll see. The fifth column? Okay. The best definition, but that's my understanding. Okay. And Hank said that to you? Yes. More, more than once. He did? Yeah. And Hank... Hank was a product of the Second World War, so more so than you or I. So that was a term that meant something to him. Yeah, I see the same thing. I don't, I don't, I see that Randy Oliver has been a very useful tool for neonics and pesticides, for conventional chemical agriculture in general. Yes. He's really kept the narrative away from pesticides with his drumbeat of mites. Yes. I counted once, I was listening to him talk, and I was just doing little hash marks every time he said the word might, and then every time he said the word pesticide. And it was something like 86 mites to three pesticide. And you know, whatever you talk about is what comes forward. So if you're giving a speech and you're talking about mites and they're the culprit number one and they're the problem, mites, mites, mites. I'm like, this is deflection. This is on purpose. It was really interesting counting it out like that. Yeah. He's very useful for for Bayer. They love him, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Oh, sure. The whole might thing is uh, an evasion of the issue Promo promoted by a chemical industry. He came and spoke at the winter meeting of this new beekeeping organization, the professional beekeeping organization. And I wasn't sharp enough to pick up on it at the time. I am now. But what one of the points he was trying to make is the dose makes the poison. That's the old axiom from toxicology, toxicology of a generation ago. The dose makes the poison. If you eat enough salt, it's poisonous. If you drink enough water, it's poisonous. But that what that does is that shows his complete lack of understanding drukri kupfmuller equation, which is the new toxicology, which is the dose-time relationship. The dose does not make the poison. It does, if you eat enough of it, it's poisonous. That's not the case with the drukri kupfmuller equation. That's the new toxicology, and the point is that the uh, the effect on the synapses is cumulative and irreversible, and even a tiny amount, given sufficient time, can become toxic. And that's exactly opposite to what um, Oliver is saying. Yeah. Uh, what that shows is that Randy Oliver doesn't understand or chooses not to understand the drukri Kupfmuller equation, the dose-time relationship, which is, says that even the tiniest amount given a sufficient time leads to the same endpoint, which is death. And that's the, that's the new 
toxicology, and that's what Hank is saying. Right, right. You don't have to have massive doses of this. Even the tiniest dose, given sufficient time, will produce the same endpoint, which is death. Right, which is why when I hear anybody talking about these new synthetic systemic poisons, if they refer to them in pounds, you know, like I've heard people like Randy Oliver and um, other UC Davis, um, I consider them shills for Bayer. When I hear them talking about these poisons and that we're doing much better because we, we are using fewer pounds of these poisons than we did use pounds of DDT, I know I'm being lied to. And the truth is being hidden because you have to measure now these products, not in terms of pounds, but in toxicity. Exactly. So they, they are, you can't, it's like comparing nuclear missiles to rocks. That's exactly you know? the point that these I These are made. nuclear, yep. yep, these are nuclear missiles, and they're referring to them as rocks. Yep. Say your point again. Your, your point is so amazing, and I know it's going to end it on a negative, but... What I have said is that it's totally inappropriate to measure the toxicity of these new generation, this new generation of chemicals in terms of pounds. And I, and I use the uh, example of rocks and nuclear warheads. Rocks certainly are a weapon but you can't compare them to nuclear warheads by weighing them. Pounds is a completely inappropriate way to determine the toxicity of a chemical, certainly these new chemicals. Yeah. And that's, that's the point that, that uh, Hank makes repeatedly, that even the tiniest fraction of these chemicals, given sufficient time, will produce the same endpoint which is death because of the Drucker-Kupfmuller equation, the dose-time equation. I think the chemical industry and Randy Oliver among them choose not to address this because it undercuts the arguments that they're trying to make to justify things like the neonicotinoids. Well, the neonicotinoids can't be that damaging because there are such small amounts going into the environment. The fact is, they are not small amounts going into the environment. And we come back to what I've said repeatedly, whenever I've been given the opportunity, is that if you look at the uh, the work of John Clark von Metten, that uh, the neonics are five to 10,000 times more toxic than DDT, that there are not small amounts going into the environment. It's, if you use DDT as the reference point of one, then what's going into the environment every year on top of what remains from previous years, because the neonics have such a long half-life, but every year is the toxic equivalent of about 400 billion pounds of DDT. Now, I, I've made that repeatedly and challenged the chemical industry to correct my math. And I did so just recently uh, in response to the article that appeared in Catch the Buzz, which excused the neonicotinoids. You remember the yeah. one that you yeah. encouraged me to respond to? 
I, I made that same statement in there that every year going into the environment is the toxic equivalent of 400 billion pounds of DDT. Shocking. Yeah, they want to talk pounds, let's talk pounds. And I openly challenged them to correct my math. Have, have you heard anything from them? No, not a peep. No, not a peep. No. No, and they won't. You know, it's so interesting, these groups and how they operate. You know, um, when Graham was alive, he was always talking about how they infiltrated the beekeeping associations in Europe in order to control the narrative. They had to get the beekeepers on their side, and they do through the academics, you know, like in the agricultural universities, public universities here in the U.S., and also in Holland, which uh, Wagon and Jin is, is, the, is the main one there. And, you know, I just look at the faculty staff and their ties to the chemical industry and who they speak for, and I dig into it and I look at their research. And at the end of the day, when the, where the rubber meets the road, which is in legislation, these guys all stand up and say, neonics are not the problem for bees. And the way that they articulate that is they talk about mites, again, 10 to 1. Yep. They'll mention mites, 10 to 1. Uh, versus pesticides, and they just they just lead that it's not pesticides. They lead in that way, and I've seen it here in the U.S. Legislation to try and get neonics uh, banned at different in different states. You always see these these scientific beekeepers coming in and fooling yep. the legislators, saying it's it's not pesticides, it's mites. That's on purpose. These people are working, they're running interference, and they're working for the pesticide industry. And that's the scientific beekeepers. Yeah, led by Randy Oliver. We, uh, the loss of Graham's voice is tremendous. I've got so many emails from him. He would just send me so many emails with all of this data. I still haven't gotten through it. Uh-huh. But it doesn't go away. You know, I've still got it. And I still reference it. You know, he just knew so much. Yes. Encyclopedic. Yeah, he was. Encyclopedic brain. Yep. Kind of weird brain. He was so smart. A little bit, yeah. Some ways, but don't we all? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you so much, Tom. Thank you. You're perfect for this. You're perfect. I just couldn't, I couldn't get anybody else that was more appropriate than you to do this reading. I'm going to continue to speak out as long as I have a voice. All right, my dear. Thank you. Okay, keep up the good work, Terry. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening. <laughs>